Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 329, and I had a conversation with Antonia Grace Glenn, Evelyn Nakano Glenn, and Patrick Glenn. Antonia and Patrick are brother and sister, and Evelyn is their mom. On February 19, 1942, just a short time after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, grossly betraying the Constitution of the United States, by sending over 120,000 Japanese Americans from the Western United States, the majority of whom were born American citizens, by the way, into concentration camps. Evelyn was sent off and imprisoned along with her American-born parents in a camp in Arizona. Evelyn is a sociologist, several books that she's written. She's a professor emerita of Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies. Antonia is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. Her films, The Ito Sisters and Before They Take Us Away, uh, are excellent. I have watched them both. They are fantastic. I highly recommend uh, them both. The Ito Sisters is, quote, a film that captures the stories of three Japanese-American sisters interviewed in their 80s and 90s as they recount how their immigrant parents struggled to make a life in America at the beginning of the 20th century, unquote. And the Before They Take Us Away film, which, quote, chronicles the untold stories of Japanese-Americans who voluntarily evacuated, you know, voluntarily, let's think about what that really means for them, evacuated from the West Coast in the wake of Executive Order 9066 and spent World War II living outside the concentration camps that held their friends and family members. While the self-evacuees had their freedom, they became refugees in their own country on a forced migration into the unknown. Many faced isolation, poverty, and racial violence as they struggled to rebuild their lives, unquote. And again, I've watched both these films. They are excellent, emotional, but so important to watch. Patrick is a writer, actor, and digital artist, and along with his sister and mother, he discusses the generational trauma and successes of the family's American story, which began when his great-grandfather came to America from Japan when his great-grandpa was 16 years old. Can you imagine that? 16 years old. And you go all the way across the world with just what you can carry, basically, to start a new life. And, you know, you work hard and you build something. And then something like these internment camps happen. And it's just, I mean, I personally, I can say, like, can you imagine? You can't. You can't imagine what that's like. It's, it's just mind-boggling and so horrifying. Um, I've said this many times uh, on Hey Human. I believe it is so vitally important to speak history, no matter how bleak and how horrifying it is, that we honor those who have come before us for all that they've endured and all that they've accomplished in what seems insurmountable odds. And hopefully we won't be doomed to repeat the mistakes and missteps of the past. And hopefully we won't continue to harm others. And that's why this stuff needs to be talked about and light shined on these these terrible, terrible blemishes on American history. And, you know, we, we talk about this in the episode that it's not just, you know, Japanese Americans, the black 
population, the indigenous people population, trans people, people, uh, Latina people, people who are immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants, until we see human beings as human beings, oh boy, I just, it's, I don't know what to do, you know, other than tell these stories and talk to people who are telling these stories and just hope upon hope that by knowing the history, we don't repeat it. That's heavy, huh? Well, in other news, (laughs) check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show itself. Uh, Also go to SusanRuth.com to learn more about me. And please follow my social media, SusanRuthism and Hey Human Podcast. Also, please check out my new relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet? with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under youtube.com slash are we there yet podcast show thanks for listening be well stay safe be love and endeavor to make this world better for all of humanity we need each other all right here we go antonia grace glenn evelyn nicano glenn yeah patrick glenn welcome to hey human Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you, Susan. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to all of you. We are going to discuss the Japanese concentration camps in America, the history of the expulsion and, I think, betrayal of Japanese Americans in America, and all the things surrounding that. I'm going to start with, I think, with Evelyn. <clears throat> I was born in 1940, so I was, I, was um, I guess, what, two years old? When we went to the camps, yeah, yeah, when my parents and the entire you know extended family were sent to the camps. For the listeners who don't know uh, about what happened during World War II after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, what the reaction of America was. Well, of course, there was um, a lot of uh, fear and uh, concern, especially on the West Coast. Uh, in fact, a fear that perhaps there would be uh, some bombing or invasion uh, of the West Coast as, you know, as a result of the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the destruction of a great deal of the U.S. naval um, station th- stations there. Um, <clears throat> so this was a big shock, I think, to people. Um, so that's the kind of backdrop uh, in terms of what was happening at that point. There, th- there was fear on the West Coast. Um, there was, however, you know, a military um, presence, of course, on the West Coast that was keeping control. Um, and there was an immediate removal of people, Japanese from, I guess it's Bainbridge Island up in uh, Washington State. And what's the name of the one in uh, Southern California? Terminal Island. Terminal Island. Um, <clears throat> and people were, uh, Japanese were removed uh, immediately from the island after after the um bombing of Pearl Harbor. So obviously there was a, a lot of fear and uh, concern, but I think um, the removal of Japanese Americans um, occurred in a sense much later. It was, I think, in, um, in April of 1942, March, 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 April of 1942. So this was several months after the bombing when things had kind of settled down and there was no evidence of any um, activity, you know, uh, on the part of Japanese Americans that could be 
deemed suspicious. And uh, I think it's um, telling that one of the, um, I think it was the general who was in charge of that, of this district said the fact that there has not been any sabotage activities means that there will be sabotage activities. In other words, the fact that nothing had happened was the most uh, suspicious thing of all. So you can imagine that kind of thinking. I, I can imagine it because that rhetoric is alive and well today. So Absolutely. It's unfortunately, yes. not hard to imagine. As I watched all the movies that Antonia that you sent me before they take us away. I watched the Edo sisters. And when I, I heard that there was a study done, which to me is just ridiculous anyway, but I, and government is government, that they were like, okay, let's go in and see your Japanese Americans faithful to America. And the result was, yes, they are absolutely 100% Americans. And they buried it in order to support the rhetoric, the anti-Japanese rhetoric. And I think it's important to keep in mind that there was a long history of anti-Japanese sentiment and organization uh, in California, especially, um, including uh, farmers groups who were very concerned um, about the Japanese success in agriculture, uh, especially intensive farming of uh, uh, strawberries and other crops. So, Japanese were disproportionately uh, responsible for a lot of the produce that was being grown in California. And um, also, I think another important background is the anti-Chinese movement, which actually started in the 19th century against the Chinese immigrants. And there were many um, violent drivings out of people of Chinese, you know, from the initially from the gold fields, as well as in many cities like Seattle, Los Angeles, etc. So I think this um, history of anti-Chinese uh, violence and um, sentiment is, is an important prelude to the run-up to the anti-Japanese movement. Japanese immigration uh, started, in a sense, after the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which barred all immigration from China. And then it was after that period that the Japanese began immigrating. And so then they became the uh, target of uh, anti-Asian sentiment. And in fact, the uh, all immigration from Asia had been ended in 1924 with the Immigration Act of 1924. So at the time of the executive order 9066 in 1942, there had been no new immigration from Japan since 1924. So that's 18 years where, so the idea that somehow this was a, you know, population of spies or that, you know, as my mom was saying, you know, saboteurs, these were people who had been residents in the country for, you know, at least 18 years. And so it was majority families. And so if you look at, you know, all of the photographic evidence of, of the camps, you know, it's, it's families, it's women, it's young children. It's the idea that this is a, this population is a threat, I think is undercut by you know, the ample photographic evidence of, of just seeing what the population was, elderly, children, women, you know, that it was, it was, and also the majority of them were American citizens. And so I think, yeah, I think it's really important to keep this, this particular incident in context in the anti-Asian and anti-Japanese movement, because the California legislature like considered and or passed, I think, anti-Japanese laws every year from like 1908, I think, through beyond World War II. 
um, including limitations on the ability to become citizens, limitations on the ability to own land. If you were an alien and ineligible for citizenship, you couldn't buy land. And only Asians were aliens ineligible for citizenship. So, you know, ways to try to curtail the rights of this population to kind of achieve any kind of equal status, you know, that that happened year after year after year, there's all of these laws. And then you get to Executive Order 9066, which feels like the culmination of this kind of 60-year campaign, as opposed to just, you know, happening as a result of wartime hysteria. The executive order uh, sort of allowed the uh, military to create these military zones and to exclude civilian populations from that area. So that was uh, very important in terms of um, the military deciding which were the um, uh, critical areas. And basically, they chose all of California, include you know all the, all the way to the to the east. Uh, eastern border and even parts of Arizona um, to be kind of considered danger zones. So actually, parts of parts of yeah half of Washington. Yeah, supposedly any state was uh, internal state was uh, safe to go, but uh, the governors of all the states except for Colorado immediately um, issued proclamations that uh, Japs were not welcome and that they would be turned back at the border. If they tried to come into their states, so of course it, the Japanese were in this bind of, you know, if they tried to leave, then they would face uh, hostility or barriers. Plus, they would have to just take whatever they had, you know, they could put in a car or whatever, and just leave with with no resources, with all their family, with whatever they could carry, basically. Yes, yes, and about five thousand. Japanese Americans did manage to do that in a very brief three-week window of time between the sort of declaration of those military zones and then the evacuation order, which then uh, announced that the Japanese would have to stay in place and wait to be picked up to be, um, you know, taken to uh, to concentration camps. Well, just for clarification, when my mother talked about Japs not being welcome, she was using the, the kind of racial slur of the time. So, of course, just to be very clear, that's not common usage because it is a racial slur. But she was, she was. I picked quoting, up on that. Yeah, not advocating the use of the term, but she was, she was quoting what they were saying. Yes, no, I definitely picked up on that. Yeah, there was the yellow peril and and all this. And again, the way history repeats itself. You know, when the pandemic broke out, the insanity around. Asian hate went into a fever pitch and is still, I think, in a fever pitch, just like after 9-11 or after, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, suddenly anyone that looked like brown skin and, you know, dark hair and maybe a little bit different, that they were suddenly terrorists, no matter what. I have friends who were just sitting in their class and in their high school English class and 9-11 happened and suddenly their buddies were now their enemies. Right. You know, when I went to school, I grew up in Washington State. I graduated from high school, took all my history classes in high school, went off to college. It wasn't until I think my second year of college that I learned of the concentration camps of the Japanese Americans. That's insane to me that I did not hear anything about it in my entire schooling. I think, Annie, you had a similar experience, right? Yeah, I remember in, in, I think it was in middle school history that the, the history textbook had one paragraph that addressed the experience of Japanese Americans during World War II. And I brought it up to the teacher 
And I said, you know, this isn't enough. And he said, well, you can do a presentation on it then. Like he wasn't going to change the the, the curriculum, but, you know, I could do a, a special assignment. So I said, okay. <laughs> so I prepared, you know, my little cards and came in and did a very, very long and uh, uh, very, very serious uh, presentation. So I took myself very seriously on that. But it was, yeah, I think it's, it's I, I've never kind of understood the idea that it's like patriotic to not acknowledge the truth of your history, to bury the parts that make you look bad that sort of show, you know, the, the, the weaknesses or the shortcomings of the country that, that, because the fact is it happened. It is the history. It's not a question of whether it happened. These, you know, moments in history did happen and to not acknowledge them is to not acknowledge the full kind of scope of our kind of whole national narrative. And also, as you say, then we keep repeating it and we keep, it, it cycles through again and again, where it's, it, you just swap out the names of whoever the targeted population is, whether it's Japanese Americans, whether it is, you know, Muslims, you know, currently, you know, undocumented refugee populations are being targeted with the exact same rhetoric. You just swap, you can just swap out the name. It's, you know, the same threat, the same undermining, the same great replacement theory. It's the same, you know, that's what they were saying about Japanese hundred years ago and Chinese before that, that they're replacing us. I mean, you just find the same, you know, the newspaper articles. So it's, it's, we do keep repeating it because we don't acknowledge it. We don't own it. Well, and the bottom line is this, this is racism and economics. So when you force people out of their homes and away from their stores and their livelihoods and their belongings, that's a land grab. That's a property grab. You just, then the powers that be go in and Whoever wants to can take from the people that have established their homes and their livelihood happened. As you say, the Chinese, it's happened to the Japanese, it's happened to African-Americans. And yet, you know, there's currently a movement to not teach anything about these subjects because it's seen as somehow defaming America and that it's unpatriotic. And so there's this um, kind of uh, movement against uh, the teaching of these subjects and to, in a sense, cleanse textbooks um, and to uh, actually monitor teachers uh, who might bring up subjects that are considered to be unpatriotic by mentioning anti-Black racism. And so, um, you know, we're currently in a culture fight about this very issue. It's called fascism. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I did want to mention is that uh, because of this experience, historic experience, Japanese Americans and their various organizations have uh, sort of taken a very active role um, in protesting and trying to counter anti-Muslim and um, anti-immigrant movements and rhetoric as well, because we are very um, cognizant of what can happen when people are targeted in this way. Watching both those films, it, it brings it home even more. I think people think, oh, there's no way Americans would treat people like that. Do you have any recollection? I know you were quite young, but do you have any recollection of being there? I do have recollections. Um, I do remember uh, the, the first camp that I was in was the Gila River concentration camp in uh, the desert of Arizona. And so I do remember the landscape and the sandstorms where the sand blew around. And because the um, the barracks were, this is, these were essentially army barracks that were built by the U.S. Army, um, the, the wood was very green. And so it, when it shrunk, there were sort of uh, spaces on the floor. And so the sand would actually 
blow up through the floorboards. Uh, so I remember that. And um, I remember um, playing uh, in, in, the, uh, in the area. And uh, if there was rain, there were sort of puddles. And that was sort of, you know, a source of great joy. Uh, I remember that I ruined this new pair of uh, red shoes <laughs> by slopping around in a puddle because it was such a novelty. And my mother being very uh, cross with me about that. So yes, I do. I do remember um, the uh, the camps, and there were mess halls, you know, with communal tables and meals. Um, so it was just like, you know, being in a combination of being in the army and being in prison. I guess when I was about three and a half or four, my mother was diagnosed with type uh, tuberculosis, and so she had to be um, in a sanatorium. At which point, uh, my grand maternal grandmother, who was in the Heart Mountain camp, uh, was allowed to come and fetch us and uh, take us to Heart Mountain, and where my mother was in a sanator- tuberculosis sanatorium for almost a year. And uh, I stayed with my grandmother and uh, grandfather in Heart Mountain. So that's another uh, set of uh, memories that I remember from camp. Didn't one of your is it one of your aunts lost a baby, or basically their baby was murdered? Uh, yes, uh, she went into labor uh, on the way to being transported to the camps, and uh, the um, when she was examined by a nurse who apparently was not very qualified, and she started giving birth. The n- nurse, um, you know, tried to just push the baby back in, uh, hence the baby was suffocated and. Uh, uh, died as a result of that. So you know, the for her that the uh, that the internment led to the death of her newborn son. Yes. Yeah, and in the bathrooms there were no partitions. I, it it sounded watching the video of people taking bags and stuffing them with straw to sleep on. Yes, initially uh, because of the uh, permanent camps had not been built. We were sent to various, um, uh, what do we call it? Uh, you know, things like fairgrounds and horse uh, tracks. And so th- the first places some people were, were in horse stalls, you know, where there were still signs of horses there. And, uh, and there, there, was no, uh, there were no beds. Uh, so they had to just uh, fill these um, sacks with straw to sleep on. So those were the conditions. In other words, they weren't quote ready yeah. to receive receive people. For Patrick and Antonia, I'm assuming that you learned of this at a young age, or that you you know the the conversations were coming out. I know I, I'm half Jewish. My father's family was killed in the Holocaust, and I know how that filters down into family trauma and how it makes. It just it creates this thing. It almost becomes its own entity that lives in a house. Did you all experience that? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've I have known it sort of yeah all my life. And and I remember as a kid going to hearings because they were um, uh, pursuing redress for all the people who had been in camp. And so I remember hearing the stories of camp survivors as a young age. My parents were were you know activists involved with the Japanese American community in New England. And so they were actually very uh, directly involved in the campaign for for redress and for an, an official apology from the U.S. government, which was obtained in the 1980s. Um, and so, 
part of the process of that was a series of hearings where people would share their stories. And so I just, I remember again, as a child, just hearing people, you know, elders talking about the, um, just the indignity of it and sort of the, the pain and the trauma. And I think that, that, that stayed with me. And as I think, I think you just articulated it really beautifully, Susan, in terms of the idea that it, it, it lives in your house with you. It lives in your family. I think that's, you know, sort of the, maybe the certainty that some people feel that the country always represents them, always represents their interests, that their citizenship is a guarantee of stability of rights. I think that the Japanese American community does not feel that way because of what my mother and my, you know, our, our, the previous generations experienced. And I think that that's the, I think that's the intergenerational trauma for me is just that sense of like, there's no guarantee of that protection that, that there, there's, my mother has a book called Unequal Freedom. And I think the idea that freedom is, is guaranteed, that it is equal, that it, it is, it is, that there's a level playing field for everybody once you have a certain level of citizenship or status in this country. I think we don't feel that way within the Japanese American community because of that experience, because we know it can be taken away. Um, and so I think seeing the activism of my parents, seeing the, the, the uh, testimony of the Japanese American elders was very inspiring to me. And I didn't know that it was going to be the source of inspiration for my filmmaking. Um, and so somehow when we were, you know, when my grandmother and my great aunts were older, we, you know, we sat down to interview them mainly because we wanted to just capture their stories because they told fun stories, but they were really eager to talk and they shared things that, I, I, you know, I think it's unusual for that generation, for the first generation, they're called Nisei, the Issei are the immigrant generation. My grandmother and her sisters were the Nisei. I think it's unusual for the Nisei generation that experienced camp to be so forthcoming and to talk really openly about um, the details of what that was like. And as you said, my, my great auntie Nancy sharing the pain of the story of losing her child um, they really were very open with us. And uh, we hear from many people that their parents and grandparents did not want to talk about camp. And that I think there's an ongoing silence around the trauma because people feel shame or they just feel like they want to put it behind them, that it's almost, it's almost scary to bring it back up. And so, you know, and plus that generation really now is is gone. So those stories have been lost. So I think once we realized that my grandmother and my great aunts were sharing stories that were important beyond our family. I think we were kind of committed then to, you know, making this film and 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 sharing it with a wider audience. And, you know, I, you know, people come up to us at screenings and they just say, you know, that's that's my family story. And I just remember this one college student saying, My grandmother never wanted to talk about camp and she has Alzheimer's. And so she, you know, those memories are gone. And so she said, I came to see your film to learn my family story. Mm. And so that's where it just feels really meaningful. And we're hearing the same thing with, with our second film with before they take us away, which focuses on, as you said earlier, the Japanese American self evacuee experience that it's really, it's really sort of lesser known that there was this very brief window when Japanese Americans could quote unquote voluntarily evacuate from the West coast on their own. If they had a place to go, if they had someone who would sponsor them, if they basically would not be, on the government charge. And if they could leave in this very brief window, then they would not have to go to the concentration camps. And so, 
you know, as my mother said, around 5,000 people sort of managed to pack up their belongings and, and, and you know, flee to the interior states. Um, and so this was a population that did not experience camp, did not experience incarceration, but, you know, frequently experienced isolation, um, incredible poverty, you know, incredible, you know, arduous, underpaid physical labor, and sometimes racial hostility and violence. And that particular chapter's just not been told. And so we wanted to, and this is based on my mother's research. My mother really, you know, spearheaded this project and conducted interviews with more than 30 members of the self-evacuee community. And just those stories have not been told. And so we're really hearing from people, you know, who see it, you know, we've, it's been on the Sacramento PBS station and people are contacting us on social media saying, that's my family story. And I've never, I've never, you know, seen it told, never heard it. Um, and so it's just, you know, again, these, these, these little kind of hidden chapters of American history that again, we as Japanese Americans, were not necessarily even that familiar with. It's just, it's so important because it makes it, it's the more voices and the more stories that we can bring forward, we get a much reach, richer and deeper understanding of kind of the American experience. I don't know if Pat, if you want to jump in. Well, I think Annie put it pretty, pretty well and pretty succinctly there. Um, but if I had to add anything, I would say my sisters and I are all, we're all three of us are biracial, right? So we have this, we, we have the stories and we have the sense, but we also um, pass for white, if you know what I mean. No, nobody's, let's put it this way. Nobody's ever told us we speak English well, whereas. No, they asked us if we were from Taiwan. <laughs> Who did? The, this guy in the Dallas airport. We were there with mom. Sarah uh, and I were sitting there with mom. And this guy in a 10 gallon hat said, are you all from Taiwan? Oh, Sorry. In, in, in my experience, nobody's ever never brought that up but you know my mom's been told that plenty um so there there's almost a um i don't know what the word would be like imposter syndrome where you are aware of the family history and the things that have been done um but you aren't um uh, marked visually to the wider population by it necessarily if that makes any sense do you feel that 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 you, then you sort of escape some of the trauma because of that, or do well, you? No, um, it, it's just it. Um, you, you it, it's just you aren't you aren't visually marked by it. But I, I, I do think the the traumas do come down um, in in subtle ways, generation to generation. Um, our grandparents, my mom's mom's generation, um, had that saying about you know can't be helped. What's what's that? Uh, how's that? that that struck me so hard when I was watching. And when, when she said that, I, I mean, that felt like a gut punch. It, it made me, it's so sad to me that that that's how everybody felt from that generation. Like, Oh, well, this is just the way it is. Yeah. And, and I think there's also a, a, um, a cultural value in Japan of uh, enduring hardship being virtuous in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, you know, gaman, they call it. And so, yeah, I don't know if that's a, a good thing or a bad thing, but it, it is something that I think then filters down, you know, uh, parent to child. And then when that child becomes parent, passes that on as well. The stoicism that had to have been required for the people that, that did choose to, as <laughs> put quotes around, uh, volunteered to leave, uh, that the unbearable backbreaking work 
of farming and trying to rub two cents together and just trying to survive. Right. And not complaining. And that that, and then in turn, you know, years later, the same people that were calling them out as being terrible human beings are suddenly saying, Oh, look how hard they work. Right. Yay them after they've stolen all the land. And well, I mean, you know, to, to put that into today's terms, I mean, how many people that rail against um, undocumented immigrants themselves benefit from the grossly underpaid labor um, of those same immigrants? Absolutely. Including the people that are screaming the loudest in politics, they, sure. they tend to uncover the fact that they themselves use undocumented workers. The idea that any human being is illegal is mind-boggling to me. Right. Yeah. I, I just wanted to mention that um, sometimes an untold part of the story is uh, the draft resistors, because a part of the what happens in 1943 is after uh, the the army opens up the ranks and gets volunteers and a lot of Japanese American men volunteered for the military and they performed valiantly, you know, in the war. A lot of them were from Hawaii, but a lot of them were also volunteered from the camps. And then in uh, late 1943, they're, they're, the, the government actually then institutes a draft uh, that includes Japanese Americans. So they're, they're drafting trying to draft uh, young men from the camps to go in the army, which a lot of uh, them actually responded to that by enlisting. But then there was a group uh, of draft resistors. I think they were called the Heart Mountain resistors. And um, that they were, um, in a sense, um, what do you call it? Uh, sort of isolated and seen as un-American because they refused to go in the draft. So that was another thing. And that that was uh, actually the cause of a bit of a rift in the Japanese American community, because the sentiment was that, yes, you know, that we should show our patriotism by the men going off to, you know, fight in the military. Um, and it's only recently that there's been this kind of resolution that uh, these men were also patriotic in the sense that they were standing up for uh their rights for American rights, which is a very American, supposedly American thing to do. And uh, so there's been um, the uh, Japanese American Citizens League has recognized the draft resistors as, uh, you know, with, with a commendation for their, for their action. So um, it does put people in these dilemmas about what, what is patriotism? What is Americanism also that it can be, shown by either, you know, just throwing your life on the line as required, or it could be by uh, resisting what, what they consider to be unjust orders. Absolutely. Whether you take a knee or take up arms, it's that should be an American right either way. And the, the sheer gall of a government and turning human beings and then turning around and asking them to fight their war for them is the, the level of disgusting irony that that is an example of. Well, theoretically, you're too dangerous and treacherous to be out in the open world, but we need you to take a gun and fight for the country at the same yeah. time. Right. How, Antonia, how did making the film, well, I know you were all involved in the films, but how did making these two films, how did that 
change you or uh, what did that show you or teach you? And what do you hope that it, it brings to others? So the new film is Before They Take Us Away, and that's already available. People can can access it on the PBS website because it was on the Sacramento PBS station. So, um, I mean, Ito Sisters, I think because that was a personal family story, I was really struck by, I think, the strength and um, formidableness of my grandmother and my great aunties and just not re- just learning more about what they experienced and what they endured and how they came through that. Um, just, I, it just made me admire them even more. Um, I think realizing the level of work and sacrifice that previous generations put in, that is sort of more than I would say I've, I've ever done. I've never worked that hard physically, you know, in terms of just the, the farm labor. Um, I think I have a new appreciation for, um, I mean, I think I already had a, you know, respect appreciation for domestic workers and, and agricultural workers, but just hearing more about what that was like. Um, and also through before they take us away, hearing about, you know, the, the self-evacuees and the families and how they were out there, you know, on the farm from sunup to sundown, including the children. And that, you know, one person recalled that her nine-year-old sister, her younger sister, stayed home to take care of the two younger siblings and also prepare the meals while she at, I think, 11 and her 12-year-old sister were working in the field all day from sunup to sundown. That is just kind of mind-boggling. And again, it's happening today. I think, you know, the, the, you know, all of the, all of the food that reaches our tables is being picked by human hands. And so the, you know, I think we don't want to think about the labor and the, you know, the, the, the human rights, you know, violations involved in, you know, in any number of industries, including agriculture. So I think I, I've come to a greater appreciation of, of that. Um, and I think of the experience of Japanese American women, I think that, you know, you know, my mom was talking about, you know, the, that the, the soldiers, the, certainly the heroics of um, the Japanese American soldiers, that's, those have been somewhat, you know, well-documented, but I think many of the kind of the documentary coverage of the Japanese American experience is focused on men. And so I think, you know, learning more about, you know, how, how the women experience, you know, the particular, you know, um, challenges of both labor, but also being primarily responsible for all domestic duties so the child rearing and and the you know food preparation just the, again they they worked incredibly hard and so you know learning more about the experience of my great grandmother who you know came over from Japan at 19 years old six months pregnant um, you know on the ship in Asiatic steerage for three weeks and then arriving and then you know becoming a farm laborer and you know having to raise her three children while also preparing meals for 60 laborers. When, when her husband became the, the foreman on the farm, it just, you know, it just makes me admire them so much. And so, and to just realize how valuable those stories are. And I think that those, some of the kind of, not kind of great person of history stories, but really the kind of everyday um, stories are so important. And again, create a more complex portrait of the American experience. So I just, I have some, you know, increased respect and regard. And it just, it, it also fires up my sense of activism and commitment to social justice issues. And I think that drawing the line between Japanese American redress, which was very hard won and hard fought by people like my parents, 
that the fight for some acknowledgement from the government that that was wrong, some small financial compensation that did not even come close to the, the incredible amount of money and land that Japanese Americans lost, as you said, a land grab. I think that their direct ties to the current movement for reparations for the African American community, which you know, which we support, I think being able to address, you know, the the status of the Native American communities, and I think you know the the land acknowledgements that you know organizations now are, are you know are articulating. I think those are important, but I think I'm, my question is, what does that mean? What is the next step? To make a land acknowledgement is sort of like, okay, we've done that. We've, we've put it on our website. So what does that mean? You know, when, when you sort of acknowledge that the land was taken, then what? You know, so I think that the idea of working towards some kind of restorative justice for other populations, acknowledging the pain of undocumented populations or refugees who come to this country and are separated at the border, that families are separated, that children are put in cages is excruciating and intolerable. And it should be for everybody. But I think particularly for not not particularly, I, I think that we I think we have an obligation to acknowledge that. And my mother having experienced family separation, you know, from her parents when her mother was in the sanatorium for a year, when her father had actually left camp to go uh, pursue a job in Chicago, because there was a point at which they were allowing people to leave the camps if they did not return to the West Coast. So, you know, my mother really experienced a trauma of family separation, which is you know, I mean, she can speak to that, but I think that it it we have an obligation to be involved in these issues for other communities. And I think I think to me the greatest hope is interethnic solidarity, and and knowing that we have common cause and that we have shared goals of you know a certain level of of equity and justice for everybody. Well said, absolutely. Uh, Evelyn, would you like to speak to that? How how many you you said you were in there for a few years and the family uh, broken up because your mother got sick and your dad went to work. Once you are allowed to become American citizens again, how did that affect your family and you particularly and your brother? Well, I think the thing was we were. I think the family uh, on both sides were very close-knit, the extended family, and what happened after the war was uh, different parts of the family ended up in different places. So, in, in that sense, I think the extended ties that were, uh, you know, very nourishing were cut off. Um, my grandparents and my aunt went to uh, New Mexico because they had been warned by their former employee employer that they would not they would meet with hostility if they tried to return to the Sacramento Valley area. And so they went to New Mexico to farm. And my oldest aunt went there. I think my younger aunt went to Colorado and our immediate family went to Chicago. So um, so basically I spent my childhood cut off from these uh, sort of larger family ties. And it wasn't until the mid-50s that my family finally returned to California to be with them. So, you know, I think it was a kind of a loss of a way of life uh, that happened for a lot of us that we were now in completely, um, you know, very different and um, unfamiliar circumstances. I mean, sometimes that can be good in the sense that it opens your um, horizons and, and you meet different sorts of people. 
But um, at the time, I think it was very difficult, especially after uh, this kind of shared experience of being in the camps to suddenly then be out in this, what might be called a kind of foreign world. Um, and I should mention that it wasn't until 1953 that um, Japanese Americans and other Asian Americans were allowed to become naturalized citizens. So at that point, I think he must have been in his 70s after being in this country for... Talking about your grandfather. Yeah, my grandfather. He was 80. He was 80 years old. And he had come over as a 16-year-old. So, you know, whatever that that number of years before he could become an American citizen. And I don't think my grandmother ever did become an American citizen. So it took that long. Uh, The other thing that I wanted to mention was in the 50s, what happened was a complete turnaround. Um, And you may have heard of the model minority uh, idea, which... Um, a, a New York Times reporter wrote this uh, article that became a kind of sensation talking about how the Japanese Americans, having recovered from the wartime experience, you know, were now um, achieving huge success in terms of educational attainment and other kinds of positions. And so that was sort of uh, meant to laud the Japanese American population, but it was then used as a cudgel against other um, minority groups that here is this outstanding group that has suffered from, you know, being interned and being hated. And now they, they've, they're these model citizens, you know, and, and so then it became a matter of blaming the, the victim of blaming other groups that had, you know, that still remained um, poor and, you know, not being able to access education. So um, that became very problematic, I think, for many uh, Japanese Americans, um, on the one hand, to be praised, and on the other hand, knowing that that was being used, you know, as a uh, deliberately as a kind of device to demean other groups that had been unable to, you know, achieve as much success. Mom, wasn't that also used, didn't that also correspond with the rise of the African-American civil rights movement and the um, Latinx civil rights yes. movement? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is that um, in addition to um, using the the uh, Japanese Americans as a, as a model, it was also used as a kind of a cudgel against these other groups. And so um, I think... Um, one thing that is important is to note that this period was also the rise of the civil rights movement where Latinos and uh, especially African-Americans um, started really organizing and, you know, having a voice and starting to make uh, demands um, for equality. And I think it was in that atmosphere that this model minority uh, idea also came into being as a way of refuting or, you know, uh, demeaning the, the Black civil rights movement, that, you know, if if other groups could be as um, obedient, I guess, and um, patriotic, then, you know, they would get their share. And so, I think that was uh, very important in terms of, uh, it was very, poli- what I'm saying is that it's very politically motivated, I think, to suddenly start praising Japanese Americans. Um, and there's no coincidence that this happened at this p- period of the rise of the Black Civil Rights Movement. Well, I think that's a big part of 
as we spoke earlier, the idea that our history shouldn't be taught and that the shameful behaviors of American government against so many pe peoples and populace, that somehow that should just shut up and, and keep moving forward, that we're not going to acknowledge this history. If we don't talk about it, just to keep a stiff upper lip and move forward. We're not going to talk about all this stuff. We're not going to talk about how Chinese are treated or black people are treated or Japanese are treated or immigrants are treated or undocumented people are treated or any of that stuff and how it all happened. We just move forward, keep your head down, move forward, shut up and take it. That's what it feels like. Yeah. I, I think that's very clearly why it's, why it's there um, because it justifies the existence of hierarchies. It justifies the existence of, of unequal outcomes. Um, if you can say, if, if you, if people don't know about context and if they don't know the events that have led up to the present day, then you can just say, well, this is the way it is, or this is natural. And there's no point in asking for anything else. Um, yeah, I think that's very, very clearly why, there is a movement to keep the population ignorant of all that's all that's happened in the country's history. Yeah, that way they get to do it again and right, again exactly. again. Uh, what's next, project-wise? How does this move forward? Well, we're currently working on another film. We're we're completing um, before they take us away. Um, it is viewable now, but we're we're going to start doing more screenings. Um, with our uh, longer cut. So, uh, you know, stay tuned with that. We've got uh, uh, social media. Um, check us out as Unwashed Masses. And we have two festival screenings coming up. And we are also beginning production on another documentary film called In Our Place, which is about um, the displacement of ethnic groups um, from a couple of different areas, including the, the Japanese Americans, um, and kind of what ends up coming into that space. So, as Japanese are being interned, then African-Americans being brought in for war labor, World War II labor. Mm -hmm. um, and then as they are put into camps, a lot of these camps are on um, Native American reservations um, and tribal lands. So the government's displacing populations there. And then once the war is over and after some years um, and the hysteria dies down, then Japanese Americans are allowed to return to where they used to be, except they don't, you know, their homes are now occupied. So um, it'll, it's going to uh, be about the, the interplay and the dynamics of these um, all three, what you, what for the government would be considered like undesirable groups. How do you as a family keep your Japanese heritage alive and, and moving forward into the, you know, into future generations, even we, you know, we do. We are active in uh, various uh, Japanese American organizations. Um, we uh, also belong to a, a Buddhist Japanese Buddhist temple, and uh, the uh, my grandchildren go to a summer program, which is called Dadama no Gakko, where they um, learn a little bit of Japanese and uh, sort of Japanese culture, cooking. Uh, flower arranging, uh, all sorts of things, uh, drum, uh, taiko drumming and that kind of thing. So, um, And that school has been going, I think, since the 1950s. So it, every summer, I think it's been going and uh, it, it's a great opportunity for the kids to 
um, to get a bit of the Japanese culture. I think the language part is very, very difficult, and my own Japanese is very limited because I spoke it as a you know child until I was maybe five years old. So it's somewhere in my brain. But you know, um, we we try to maintain that. But I think it's also important to to say that we we do have an ethnic culture, but it's not purely Japanese um, because it is. Um, it is a Japanese American culture as opposed to uh, you know Japanese. So when we go to Japan, we do uh, sort of recognize certain aspects uh, of the culture, which, um, for example, I experienced in relation to my grandparents and their values. But uh, I also realized that I am very different, and I think that's always true. You know, for immigrant groups, that in a sense you feel a sense of tie to the so-called old country, but you also recognize that. Um, you you are a, a kind of distinct group in a in and of itself, which is Japanese American. So we've created our own culture with, you know, some hybrid things, whether it's weird sushi combinations or <laughs> <laughs> you know other. Uh, I think it can be, can be very creative. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, culture doesn't have to be static. So I think, for example, Japanese Brazilians have also developed. They're, that's actually the largest, um, what you call it, the overseas uh, group. It's larger than the United States, and they have uh, also affected Brazilian culture very much. Um, and um, during the uh, 60s and 70s, when Japan was experiencing a labor shortage and they don't like to bring in uh, so-called foreign workers, they decided that Japanese Brazilians might be a good source and what they discovered was that Japanese Brazilians were not Japanese. They were Japanese Brazilians, and uh, they liked to party and dance. And so it was a little considered a little disruptive. If, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that we are a kind of hybrid group, and we're, we don't consider ourselves, quote, Japanese Japanese. And, you know, we have our own distinct subculture that we maintain. And I also feel like the the working on these films, I think, has really been a a great way for us to feel, you know, even more connected to the community. And you know, I know, I know, for myself, you know, my my siblings and I, we grew up in Massachusetts. You know, my parents were living uh, had gone to Massachusetts, the Boston area, for um, graduate school. And so, where we grew up, we were very uh, disconnected from our Japanese American relatives, and you know, you know, largely from the community. Um, but uh, now we're all in California, so we're we're more sort of geographically um, close, and have been able to get to know our, our our relatives in the community more, which has been fantastic. But also the you know the screenings we've done, screenings of Ito Sisters at the you know National um, at Janum, the Japanese American National Museum, at the Japanese American Museum of San Jose. We did a screening at the Smithsonian at the Asian Art Museum, and it's just you know and, and we want our films to reach all audiences. Um, it's been particularly moving when, you know, camp survivors come out and when their descendants come out. And so that's really been a wonderful way for us to, to feel connected. And, you know, we go to, to, you know, there's an organization called Sudus for, Sudu for Solidarity, which is a Japanese American activist organization. And they, you know, they do protests. We went to a protest at the, um, at the jail in Marysville, California, where they were holding uh, some undocumented prisoners. Um, and just, you know, the, the, so there was a, this amazing protest with taiko drums and, uh, you know, pseudo are the um, cranes, the paper cranes, and they put up this huge display of paper cranes, you know, as a way of kind of expressing solidarity with the, 
you know, the incarcerated undocumented. And so, you know, just, you know, being able to attend things like that. And again, the screenings and, and uh, the events that we've been doing have been really meaningful. And we've done a lot of screenings at Buddhist temples and other sites where it's just, it's been, it's been wonderful to connect with people. Well, I'm hoping that more high schools and junior highs will take this into their curriculum. Yeah, we've had we've had colleges as well. There's every year there's something called Day of Remembrance in February, which is a day uh, acknowledging the signing of Executive Order 9066. And so this year is actually the 80th anniversary of that signing. And so, um, you know, different organizations do Day of Remembrance events. So we've done some in you know colleges on the East Coast and the West Coast and you know people the students light candles in remembrance of each of the campsites or they get up and you know they they share stories about their own family members who experience camp and then you know they do a screening of you know like Ito sisters and so yeah being able to talk to the college students they're they're inspiring they are they are a little bit more aware of this history I think hopefully than we were I mean that then was taught in school. Um, and so just seeing this, that the student, the college students today are politically engaged and, and you know, well-informed, that that's inspiring. So, yeah, and we would love to be included in, you know, high schools as well. And, you know, I recently did a presentation at my at my kids, you know, in, in school for the seventh graders. And the teacher there, you know, had is really talking about the, it's a, a Jewish day school. And he wanted to talk about the Japanese-American wartime experience and it's sort of as a social justice issue. So that I thought that was fantastic that he wanted to do that. Absolutely. And the, this information will continue to buoy the, not to be cliche, but the youth of tomorrow to know what our governments are capable of and how to stand up against it and to fight against it and to have a voice and to not, although I understand the sentiment, to not just say it is what it is. I've been looking for people to talk about this subject for so long. I've been doing the podcast for six years. And in the very beginning, I made a list of people I wanted to talk to. And someone with this experience with the internment camp, with the concentration camp experience, I wanted to have on the show because the very reason nobody taught this to me, no one. And Mm -hmm. it made me so mad. And even, I mean, honestly, I had no idea that there were some that, that, had an exodus i thought everyone got rounded up so we did too actually i i prior to prior to recording these interviews i mean we started about 10 years ago uh i i didn't know that either um it's because it's such a point of uh uh reference for people of my mom's generation and her parents generation like if you don't know somebody one of the early questions you ask instead of like oh what do you do where do you live it's like oh where were you interned right right and this group that doesn't have that kind of unifying think of, oh, I was at Heart Mountain or I was at Gila River. And as those generations pass on, their ghosts can't come tell the stories. You know, so maybe they'll visit us in dreams and whisper and say, please keep the stories going. But without that, with them dies the the whole conversation. We can't let that happen. Yeah. And that they're all, you know, my grandmother, my great aunties are all gone now. So I feel yeah. like we we do take them with us every time we do a screening. They're like, they're there, you know, and it's like Hetty says, you know, talking about her boyfriend. She says, oh, he died early. So it's OK. And people laugh. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, Hetty told a joke and people are laughing like it feels very present. But it's like, you know, that she's been gone for almost, gosh, 
15 since like 2014 i think so okay. yeah but time. now she'll never be gone now yeah. you know what yeah. i mean ever yeah. Yeah. she is now an immortal and yeah that's how i it makes me emotional yeah. i think that's so important yeah Absolutely. And, and, you know, when our, with our next project, as my brother was saying, sort of the intersections of African-American, Japanese-American, Native American communities, this is sort of a new thing that we're taking on. So, you know, we'll also be happy to, you know, keep you up to date on that project. Yeah. To finish that film next year. And that, that'll be exciting because it'll kind of open up our kind of focus to these other communities. We're really hoping to, you know, find some good interview subjects and kind of explore some of those you know, intersections in San Francisco, you know, where the Japanese-American neighborhood became the Harlem of the West. And then, you know, on the Gila River Indian Reservation, where the camp was, what, you know, how those experiences impacted those communities. So mm-hmm. um, we're really excited for the kind of expanded conversation. Well, you have an open-ended invitation to be on the show as long Thank as you have you. a show. So <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm going to post links to all this information on heyhumanpodcast.com, but could you all say the best ways to find you on social media and, and if somebody wants to reach out and maybe their school wants to have a viewing or anything like that, what they, what they need to do? Yeah, so we have uh, websites for the first two films. So it is theetosisters.com and beforetheytakeusaway.com. We are also on uh, Facebook for Unwashed Masses, which is our production company. Um, I may ask Pat to uh, talk about the social media uh, tags. Um, But uh, yeah, but if you go to the websites, then they have, you know, there's the trailers, there's information about the films, and then both. um, So we, we did our director's cuts, which are like 80 minutes, and then the uh, the PBS versions are like an hour long. So the P- both PBS versions, if you just Google the Ito sisters, PBS, or before they take us away, PBS, you'll find the link to be able to watch the hour long version. And Pat I think I, I watched the PBS of the Ito sisters, but I watched the full length of uh, before they take us away. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll just say uh, on Twitter, we are at unwashed M underscore films. And then for uh, Instagram, we're at, uh, unwashed masses productions, all one word. Okay. I'll put links for that. All right. Great. This has been enlightening. I appreciate your time and the stories. There's so much more to tell. And I encourage anyone listening to do your own deep dive and to know the history of, of this country and the things that we're capable of, um, which we continue to, do over and over and over again we just change the face of the person we're trying to hate on so yeah if you want to uh kind of have a have your mind blown look at what benjamin franklin said about germans 1770s he was like you got to watch out for these germans i'm paraphrasing him here but you got to watch out for these germans because they're you know they can't learn our language any more than they can get our nice light white skin because in his mind germans are very dark and uh, they're not assimilating to our Anglo-Saxon culture and they're breeding like rabbits. And if you don't watch out, they're going to take over, you know? Yeah. And that rhetoric has been used against pretty much every single, my father calls them the Dems, the despised ethnic minority. <laughs> That's like you just, uh, yeah. You just insert whichever person you're feeling like hating on. And, and then you use the exact same, you use vermin, breed like rabbits. They'll never assimilate. They don't look like us. They don't think like us that, you know, they're dirty. They're mm-hmm. this or that. Ugh. Yeah. Hard. And I would, I would emphasize 
Uh, if you are going to do research into these things, remember, it's not uh, any type of a competition. It's not, oh, one group was somehow more oppressed than any other, or, oh, that oppression wasn't so bad compared to some other oppression. It's really more, I think, about um, the history of power structures always trying to oppress people, and the more groups are divided against one another, the less they're going to ask for from the from the whole group. To know the history of how people have been oppressed does not take away from whatever it is you're doing right now in your life, unless you're being an oppressive person or you're punching down, as they say. And by the way, eventually they'll come for you. (laughs) Yes, I think that that's important. But I think it's also important to uh, understand the history of struggle by people of color, for example. uh, I think it's important to to remember that history, as well as the uh, kind of oppressive forces, um, oh, yeah. because I think there's been so much heroism you know, on the part of civil rights leaders, of leaders of the redress movement, um, and uh, you know I, I think it is important to also when you teach the histories to teach also the history of resistance. Uh, to these oppress oppressions, because I think very often that that also gets, um, I think, hidden from history. I think uh, I think not enough has been uh, written about. Well, it has been certainly been written, but it's not part of popular culture about uh, civil rights struggles of African Americans. It's that uh, people act as though, well, you know, 1965 was the first time that blacks ever resisted, but in fact, you know, yeah. there's a whole history of uh, Blacks individually or uh, collectively opposing things, uh, segregation and, you know, uh, discrimination on buses and so forth. And lots and lots of people were arrested before Rosa Parks. I think that history of sustained resistance, I think, is also an important part of the American story. Um, And it's not just, you know, one or two great leaders in some particular historical period that uh, should be lauded, but sort of the everyday resistance uh, of ordinary people. Uh, And uh, so basically the struggle is a protracted one and it's constant. And I think we need to also acknowledge that. Absolutely. And the indigenous peoples who were here first period. And and their stories are just now becoming unraveled because we've ignored their stories for so long, you know, not the people in the Zoom we, but (laughs) in the populace. And again, I cannot state enough how important it is to say, to know the history of how people are treated does not any way take away from your own personal identity. And in fact, it might enhance it to know that other human beings are, you know, we are a part of a great struggle collectively. I did want to say one important idea that I've written about is the idea that the United States is a settler colony, and that has had huge um, implications in terms of shaping our history. That is, uh, and it it puts uh, Native Americans kind of at the heart of the story, because it's important. In other words, the kind of popular trope is that we are a nation of immigrants, we, no, we are we are a settler nation where there was an existing population, and that uh, in a sense the the primary purpose of the settler colonial project was to basically take control of the land 
uh, to turn it into private property and to settle individual, um, essentially white settlers into uh, to take over the land. And then to develop the land, the use of slave labor and other forms of coerced labor regimes sort of created the um, uh, the sort of racial order, I think. So I think looking at the sort of big picture, um, I think the notion of settler colonialism is is key to understanding the whole structure of the society that it has been built on, the, the United States has been built on the land of the indigenous people and the riches that have been extracted have been extracted through the labor of uh, slaves and also other groups that are uh, n- not completely free and that an important part of that has been the creation and maintenance of a racial hierarchy. So, you know, I think if I were kind of trying to summarize the United States history and racial relations, I would recommend that people read uh, our, uh, about settler colonialism and the uh, both the fo- the founding years of of uh, making maps of of the United States, and it's it's no coincidence that the first leaders of the country like Washington were um, surveyors. They, they basically, the, the impulse of the settler was to map the entire continent and then create essentially parcels. So it became property. And I think that that's very important in terms of understanding the history and sort of the place of different groups within the racial hierarchy. Evelyn, could you actually mention uh, your books that you have published? Yes. Uh, one book is Unequal Freedom, How Race and Gender Shaped American Citizenship and Labor, uh, Harvard University Press, and... Um, Forced to Care. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Forced to Care. I can't remember my books. Forced to Care, um, which is about uh, women's paid and unpaid labor, but it's also racialized, you know, domestic labor. Um, and uh, that's also Harvard University Press. Nisei, Nisei War Bride, which is specifically about the Japanese-American women's experience um, in domestic service. So those are kind of my main books. And then I have an article on settler colonialism, which is in a, a journal of race and ethnicity, I think published in 2015. So, yeah. Okay, I'll put links to all that on heyhumanpodcast.com as well so that people can start doing some reading start learning some history for sure. Thank you all for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing your stories. And I think these films are very important to watch. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Susan, thank you so much for having us. And thank you for the good work that you're doing, because what you're doing is part of the storytelling process. And, And I agree entirely with what you said, that we need to push back against the kind of the discomfort with acknowledging the full history of this country and, and uh, the idea that somehow it's going to make, you know, white children feel bad about themselves. It's, it's, I think it's, there's some notion that if you acknowledge any level of privilege that you're somehow saying, Oh, well, I don't, I don't, I didn't work hard because it was just given to me and I know that I work hard. And so I don't understand because it doesn't feel like I've just been handed things, but I think it's, it's privilege is complicated and it's multi-layered and being able to acknowledge your privilege doesn't mean you don't work hard. It just means you're you're acknowledging some things that you benefit from in our society. And it's sort of a first step is kind of having that kind of brutal honesty with ourselves about what 
you know, any of us possesses in terms of levels of privilege. It doesn't mean you have to somehow just give away all of your possessions, but I think it's just, it's, it really is about acknowledging it's, it's letting in the pain. It's letting in the, the, the true sort of level of trauma. And then how do we reckon sort of reckon with that? And I think, I think it's an emotional response. I think it's a self-protective emotional response of, of sort of saying, we don't want to know, we don't want to hear it. And it's, 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 I think it's all of our obligations to, to hear it, to bear witness to it. And so I think what you're doing is an important part of that. It's there's it's testimony and it's bearing witness. And I think it's so powerful. I just think storytelling. Um, I encourage people to, you know, to to listen to the stories of their elders and if possible, record them, particularly the stories of their mothers and their grandmothers as we lose generations and those stories get lost and they can't be found again. So I think it's, it's, I just encourage anybody to pick up a, a camera or a recording device and, and ask questions of their parents and their grandparents, because they will hear things they didn't know. And just, again, stories of, of sacrifice and, and just, you know, heroism on the individual and perhaps grand level, but just what, what has gotten any of us to where we are today. So, so thank you very much for everything that you're doing. Thank you. That's very kind. Thank you. And I, I agree wholeheartedly record your parents because the parent you think, you know, <laughs> and your grandparents, if they're still alive, the parent you think, you know, is not the parent who they think they know <laughs> it's a totally different person. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. The, the Ito sisters movie, the genesis of that was just us recording our grandmother, my mother's mom recording a little birthday greeting. That's how it started. And it, we, took her out and she just started giving all these interesting facts that we never, never heard. And then we were in the car one day and she started talking about the Benshi, which for those who haven't seen the movie is a performer who would go around with silent movies in, in the early 20th century and sort of perform vocal parts and, and music parts and, and sound effects and things. And this is something we just never had any idea of. And I think that that was the point at which Antonia had the idea, like we could make this into a real movie. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad. Like anything of this nature, <clears throat> I think there are moments that are hard to watch. And in those moments, I encourage people to push through and keep watching because as Antonia says, there, there needs to be a witness bearing. There needs to be, these stories cannot be lost to time. They, they must not be lost to time. Thank you all thank, so thank, much. Thank, thank you so much for having us because we we uh, it kind of gives us an opportunity to actually reflect on our work and uh, think about the larger significance, which often when we're caught up in the details, we don't quite appreciate. So, uh, you know, having to sort of convey what are the larger implications or the larger, um, if you want to call it, lessons uh, of of this type of work. Um, it's been very useful for us as well to get this kind of feedback. Thank well, you. It's my honor. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please go find Before They Take Us Away and the Edo Sisters and watch it. Talk to your kids. Talk to your family members. Get the word out. Keep the stories going, please. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Peace. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.